disruptive innovation with your business with harvesting rain and then tying it to alternative currency and I want I want to really dive into this and and, and follow the the evolution so that other people when they hear this when they watch this they can follow your evolution because to me, I'm like, oh man, I get it. I, I feel it. I don't understand. And, and I feel like if we go through your progression, and this is why I'm so excited to have you on here, we will all be able to gain that understanding together. <laughs> yeah. And that's been, well, first thing is that we all can intuitively understand the water as a currency and it's built right into the word current currency mm -hmm. and the natural capital which all of our livelihoods are based off of in one way or another is directly tied to precipitation so even if we're drawing water from the aquifer that water had to get there somehow and when we start to think on the global scale about climate change and about greenhouse gas emissions and about um, rising sea level from shrinking glaciers and we start to look at the whole system as a holistic conscious entity called mother earth we start to see that the lifeblood is is the flow of water and my i was I was educated in, in economics in college, and that's kind of where this all started. And what helped shatter the veil of the almighty dollar was the 2008 great financial crisis, which coincided with me graduating and going into a job market where there were no jobs. Hmm. And during my studies, I was fascinated and drawn into the Chinese economic miracle that was taking place. So basically from 2001, when they got inducted into the World Trade Organization to getting, uh, which was also coincided with them getting um, elected to host the 2008 Olympics, it was like this coming out of China. And looking on the surface at what's happening there, there's so much going on behind, so much history, so much culture, so much political intrigue that it was a rabbit hole of information that I, I dove headfirst into. Because what you see is in recent, in living history, uh, going all the way back from 1958 to 1962, there was a massive famine um, as a result of not only bad economic policies, but the way that those economic policies incentivize politicians to basically inflate production numbers to save their face when they're reporting up the chain of command. So that uh, ego and that, um, that perverse incentive had so much negative human impact. And the party that caused that is still in power. So that is a massive, massive uh, conundrum for me. And that's what really got me interested in how is this political party still in power with so much um, 
destruction in its wake. But looking at that culture, we can also reflect on our own American culture and how much destruction we've left in our wake through the past 80 years of, uh, or more of, of empire. So I, I graduated and I moved to China full time and I spent four years there getting to the bottom of that mystery, uncovering all of the, the truths of humanity because you're living in a country with 1.3 billion people, there's nowhere to hide. That you are in constant contact, uh, and what we take for granted, you know, having privacy and having autonomy um, over there, you you really don't have that type of space. So what you're confronted with every day is interacting with human beings, and through that interaction, you get to uncover more of who you are and why why you're here. So the everything kind of culminated. Um, I did a at, so at the end of four years. I, I had I had lived in in Beijing and I was living in in the su- southwest province of Yunnan, uh, working for a hotel and being a tour guide. And I was uh, researching uh, this travel guide book that I was producing, and it, and I wanted to do a bike trip to Puar. Uh, Puar is a county, uh, and it's also where this famous Puar tea comes from. This this aged fermented, basically the birthplace of tea is in this county. So I wanted to go there to the source, and. Uh, I'm looking at this little map and I'm trying to take the back roads and this map's got a little line drawn on it. So I'm, I'm going along the map and, um, turns out that they, uh, a, a river like totally flooded out the, the road. So there was no way through. So I'm in this, uh, I'm in this little town, uh, at the end of the road, basically. And everybody, it's a, it's a, it's a miserable, very depressing like town it's it's got nothing going on for it and everybody there is is it pretty much looks depressed as well and what they're what they were doing is they were totally abandoning the village and building a new village on the other side of the river like a brand new totally new village like the government was putting a bunch of money into it so every and this is what happened a lot in in these river towns um when they're building these dams is everybody would just out of town and we're going to go inhabit this new modern modern town and um you know i'm sitting there and i'm just thinking i'm like man i've hit rock bottom like i'm on this on this bike tour like going nowhere and i'm writing this book and just like what am i doing with my life and realizing that everybody struggles and there there is no difference and it's kind of through that struggle that we learn our humanity and then after that, I'm like, you know what? I feel like I've gotten to the bottom of this. And uh, I moved back to the US uh, after I've living in China for four years and being very successful as, um, you know, in different industries and getting back to the US as, as a 26 year old and having basically no job prospects there either because it, when I hand people my resume, they're like, what, what, I don't understand. What is this China thing? And, um, and it's so mind blowing that the U.S. and China are the n- number one and number two economies, and, and our economies are so deeply tied. I mean, China holds so much U.S. treasury debt, but our cultures um, are, are like uh, diametrically opposed because we look at this thing called democracy, and then we look at this thing called communism, 
Um, but what it is is it's just, it's a one, it's a, it's, it's two sides of the same coin, which is control. And, and that also helped me kind of explore what's really going on in the U S as well. And, and reflecting on, on our culture and, and our forms of, of currency and control. And I eventually was able to find a job in San Francisco, uh, through my sister working at a Mexican restaurant. So it was, it was an interesting thing because um, I was like a, a Chinese uh, immigrant because I made the full like psychological transition to like a Chinese, a Chinese peasant because I was working in this, in this village for two years and it was a farming village um, undergoing drought and trying to bring in the rice harvest. And um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm working with, uh, with, you know, Mexican dishwashers and, and, the neighborhood in, in that San Francisco neighborhood was historically Cantonese. Wow. So it was just like this bizarre thing. Um, but the whole thread weaving it is, is food as this common, common, uh, common language that we all speak and thinking of, wow, we have so much risk for conflict. Can we use food as diplomacy? And that really kind of got me set off on trying to understand urban agriculture and how do we take what's been practiced in China for millennia and how do we adapt that to the, the suburbia in the US because lawn grass is the most irrigated crop in the world and it's totally, it's, it's totally absurd and bizarre and we have so much potential to, to 180 flip that around and that's where the rainwater is so powerful because that is our source that we can be turning burying the lawns and growing the gardens. And I don't want to kind of, I mean, I can tell my life story and that'll go on for a long time, but um, fast forward, I was living in Shenzhen um, in 2014. And, you know, it's so, it's so powerful, your story with your wife and, and getting diagnosed with cancer because bam, like everything changes. Mm -hmm. And same thing happened with my mother. She got diagnosed with cancer and I had to leave China and come back to the U.S. to be her primary caretaker. Oh. And that was the most powerful lesson um, and the last lesson that the, that the parent gives to the child is how to take care of somebody else. Because for all of our entire lives, we are being taken care of. So when we are called to uh, basically provide that support during that transition, that opens my eyes to the true power of service to others. And it was from that point on I saw and I'd already been working with, with water and, and working with technology, but that was, the, that was the, the, the switch where it's like, you know what, I, I can do more with my life to help bring more love and light into this world. And it's, it was like, it's a crazy metaphor because you have a dying mother and then we have our mother earth that's in such distress and crises. And we are through our actions of, uh, violently destroying that earth in so many different ways and just by existing in these societies. So looking at, you know, what are the ways that each individual can be contributing to the healing? And we all, you know, just look behind me, this is a roof and, and there it is just, you know, 275 gallons. And this isn't even uh, reaching the full potential. This is just the tip of the iceberg showcasing people what's possible. And so that's kind of like where we get up to kind of like present day. Um, and I, I've been running this company RainCube for the last three years. And it's been interesting because trying to change perceptions around what is value, what is valuable, uh, what is a, um, 
what is a medium of exchange? Because when we look at what is being exchanged um, in biology, it's, it's water. So plants don't grow without water. And of course, there's other things going on in there, but it's that spark. It's that, um, it's that universal currency. Because anywhere you find water, you find life. So there's this whole internet aspect, and I can kind of walk you through that because we, uh, our, our human brains, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very valuable, our, our attention. And what's happening now with software development is we are getting a very rudimentary artificial intelligence. And there's, there, there's many different types of artificial intelligence all the way to like just a timer on your watch uh, to very sophisticated Google, Alexa, um, big data, machine learning. And, and that can go even beyond. And we're just at the beginning of being able to integrate this um, artificial intelligence, which is basically we're not having to dedicate our personal thinking um, to menial tasks. And by menial tasks, I mean um, something as simple as having a thermometer attached to your compost pile with uh, some trigger levels that says if the temperature drops be be below a certain level, it sends you an update on your phone or, or whatever, sends you an email, a text message to say, turn me. So we, and, and you know, that compost pile is alive, right? Uh, yeah. We're giving it, um, we're giving it a, uh, an identity uh, through the internet. A voice, a voice. A voice, exactly. So using that as an example, we can take a look at uh, attaching sensors, uh, attaching actuators, which is basically on-off switches, and we can be using artificial intelligence to be helping us manage that rainwater supply. So that's on the individual home level, helping us to better manage that very dynamic uh, water level because when it rains, it pours. And here in Florida in the summer, you know, we're getting 20, 30 inches of rain uh, or more, especially when hurricanes come through. And then in the winter, it's our dry season, but it's also our farming season. So how do we, how do we manage that water supply going forward and so that's at the individual home level. Because we live in a community, in a watershed with interdependent relationships with other people, there becomes an opportunity to share the surplus water that we have collected or that a neighbor has collected or imagine one of these big box stores that has a massive surface area that is collecting so much water that if there is a hurricane and the grid goes down, and if you have enough collection storage on that warehouse, that could be providing critical water to the neighborhood. The trick is how do you share that information and that availability with, with the community? So similar to Uber, Airbnb, um, these in-demand, I'm sorry, real-time on-demand services, we can be using a, a map um, and also a, basically a market for creating an exchange of this of this currency, this water currency. So that's that's basically um, the overview of how we can combine the internet with managing a decentralized, distributed water infrastructure. And there are many ways that you can get get uh, crafty with incentivizing behavior. And we've already seen this with Facebook and with Instagram. There is a lot of methodologies to get people to alter behavior. And there's also kind of moral issues with how, how addictive do you make 
interfaces? How addictive do you make apps? And because we are kind of in a, a cultural habit of assuming that groundwater resources are cheap and plentiful, that, that story is no longer true. And it's going to be a very difficult transition for a lot of communities to get off the groundwater addiction. And it could be violent, but we are going to try and plan for a peaceful transition. And this is a, this is a solution for that because it gives everybody the opportunity to opt into a network because your roof is a water factory. It's a solar factory too. Um, your, your lawn is a food factory. And these are things that can be producing surpluses. Now, how do we layer, how do we create a digital layer on top of the physical assets? And this is where blockchain and Bitcoin um, are so powerful because it allows us to create a prov provably rare digital asset. So imagine that every time a drop of water falls into that, into that rain cube back there, the sensor picks it up and it mints a digital token. Now that digital token um, wants to get consumed. So if I go to that rain cube and I, and this is in the future, this is science fiction right now, but we're actively working towards this goal. I can go and earn points or earn coins for consuming the water because that water is not doing any good just sitting in that tank. It wants to move, it wants to flow. So we can design a currency that incentivizes the flow of water through, re through rewards. So right now, the platform that looks most likely for this technology to be developed on is Ethereum. Okay, and that's why I was asking. Yeah, um, so Bitcoin is, um, is powerful in that it was the first platform to create um, a prova provably rare digital asset specifically related to money finance as a legal structure. What Ethereum does is it allows any type of legal contract to be codified and turned into a smart contract. So you can take um, voting, you can take um, organizational structures, each little job description, that is a line of code that can be compiled into um, a contract. So like, for example, accounting. Right now we have like paper pushers to like, you know, file things and this one goes over here and stamp this one. All of those little job functions can be turned into code and it basically becomes automated in a way that no single individual is necessarily able to manipulate um, that, that job function. So it creates the basis for distributed autonomous organizations. So like right now, we have a central water utility. They're the ones that are charging the rates. They're the ones that are pumping the water. They're responsible for fixing any leaks or um, any other malfunctions. But in this instance, where it's a decentralized water utility, uh, no one owns it, but everybody is responsible for maintaining it. So this is kind of the world that we're going to be inhabiting, uh, where the cost of running organizations is going to drop to near zero because it's going to be running on open source software. Yeah, it's fascinating. When we link rainwater, which in many ways is really, I mean, it's really like this unclaimed resource. Um, and I know some, some states try to claim it as, as the states and whatnot, 
but then they don't use it wisely. So it's like this really unclaimed, uh, mismanaged resource. And I think that with, with, with money, there's so much scarcity around it. They're like, oh, you want me to put it into an alternative currency, but I need to keep it all in this currency. But if there was another way to infuse the alternative currency economy with a resource, a form of capital that was not already claimed, you know what I mean, by the dollar in their minds as a consumer, um, that they'd be able to really accept this. This is why it's so powerful because it's something that they can set up, they can start participating on uh, in um, without, um, without this huge overhead. And then the whole concept of having a, uh, a water economy of a city set up as a digital map so that you, you can in real time track the amount of water. I mean, I know there are meteorologists, you know, who are gonna like hear that and be like, wait, but that means we get actual data for the first time because every farmer who is part of their community knows that hill over there gets more rain than that hill most of the time, you know? And it's like, because we all can, and not only that, we can see how patchy rain is. So, it will give us just such a more complex, more adaptive understanding of what these things are. And then this is also the solution to those, those, those big conspiracy fears, maybe not so you know, uh, fake that people have, that people, big corporations and very wealthy individuals are buying up all the world's water. And it's like, well, well they are. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And it's like, well, they're conspiring. It's like, well, no, they're very publicly going out and buying it because they, as they say, they believe that water is the new form of currency. You know what I mean? And so it's like, we need to get out of that back on our heels, like, wait, what's going on? And we need to get involved with this because we've, with, with RainCube, we finally have an opportunity to have it be this painless switch. And in fact, it being this empowering step into the alternative economy. Um, yeah. Well, I would just want to add one point because, you know, we look at um, this, uh, what, what's called the tragedy of the commons, right? Oh, yeah. Um, because, oh, I have to consume more because if I don't consume it, somebody else will. And that is just, uh, uh, you know, a race to the bottom. To There's an it's anonymity to, to it, too which is was a big exactly. part of the problem. There was no, um, uh, there was no kind of real time tracking. Yeah. Well, in transparent tracking. So this, uh, there's a book that I recommend everybody read called the internet of money. Uh, and that, uh, is a really great primer on how does blockchain and Bitcoin and these new, uh, forms of value, uh, really, you know, become powerful in the future. And what the book talks about is turning the tragedy of the commons into the festival of the commons. So our goal now is to turn what we thought of as a laborious job into something that's fun, collaborative, and community-based, and it really is gamified. And the fact that instead of I win, you lose, it is we work together to win-win-win. Uh, so everybody benefits from this program. And uh, using um, a proven method of of finance, um, I'm taking inspiration from community-supported agriculture. And what has happened in the past, and, and happens now, is you have a, a farm, 
and they want to be farming uh, sustainably and responsibly, and they want to be providing food to the local community. So they, the farm will pre-sell the harvest in exchange for money up front. So they're selling shares of the harvest, and that money goes to pay for the seed, uh, goes to pay for the labor to put the seeds in, uh, basically gives them that, that financing, that funding up front to produce that, that bounty. And we can um, take that same model and adapt it to paying for the upfront infrastructure cost for rainwater harvesting. Because the reason why we aren't all harvesting rainwater is because it's too expensive and water, city water is so cheap. And, and those things are, are, are going to flip because this, this system back here, um, I'm trying to get it that for a DIY, it's $1 for one gallon. Mm -hmm. So if you install uh, four of these, that's 1,100 gallons. I think you can get that, that cost, that installed cost under $1,100. And the lifetime of this is going to be 10 years, 10 plus years. So if we say it costs a dollar to install one gallon, well, what is the food production from that one gallon? And we can start to calculate a return on investment. So if we say I can produce X amount of pounds of food with X amount of gallons of water storage capacity, I can start to plan out how long will it take to pay back that, that financing. So if, um, if it's $1,000 for one home, and I know that I have a hundred square foot garden bed. I can reliably pay back that loan uh, in one to three years. So the opportunity cost of not harvesting water is greater than what the money it takes to get that system online. So and this you may not be selling that food. You may just be reaping that in the savings of having not having to buy that expensive regenerative organic food. Exactly. Um, but or yes, and because nature is so abundant, and what I and, and this is what happens: you plant um, a crop of tomatoes, and they all come in at once, and you have to uh, really, you know, be quick to harvest all that, and and you're not going to be able to eat all those tomatoes, and maybe you can it, but you have um, a surplus in a in a in a canned uh, tomato sauce that is now a, a value-added product that can be sold or gifted to neighbors. So, um, and, and filtered drinking water as well. And there's ways to treat rainwater so that it is clean and sanitary. Um, but this system behind me um, just has some simple filtration with a, with a leaf eater on top. And then it has another sediment uh, filter below. Um, the water's coming out crystal clear, and we're using that to um, water our chickens, to water our compost piles, and to irrigate our garden beds and doing so much more with it. And that's, um, that's like I said, just the tip of the iceberg. And how do we, you know, inhabit a, an economy based off of abundance as opposed to scarcity? And, and that's, I think, the hardest transition that we're going to have to make is we've been in that old story for so long. Um, and then we have this new story and it's kind of like awkward at first, um, but we're, we're building this cultural proficiency. And once that culture starts going and once we get the awareness and we start attuned to the value, then we're going to get the technological capabilities to help scale that up because we have about 30 years um, to build out this, this new rainwater infrastructure. I'm calling it the internet of rain. 
but we can get 10 trillion liters of distributed rainwater storage capacity to meet the demands of 10 billion people around the world so that we're not paying for water. Everybody is getting a basic water income, universal basic water income, because the whole goal here is we don't, we don't, we don't want hunger. We don't want homelessness. And we have the tools to manage these resources in a way that everybody gets access to that. This is amazing. This is really amazing. Wow. And the marginal cost for doing this is going to drop over time. So it could be a dollar a gallon now, but 10 years from now, it could be 10 cents a gallon for installed rainwater storage. And also, too, getting away from putting things in base denominations of dollars and cents. Because we could be thinking in terms of liters and gallons. Right, as our, right. Like they what is, are the currency. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's, that's exactly it, is the water is the currency and getting people to think and, and that, that's like the first thing is water is currency. Water is the operating system for, for life on earth. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at right now is just trying to share the story. And that's why I'm so grateful and so appreciative. One, I've, I've been able to take your class and benefit so much from it uh, because now I have the holistic toolkit, right? Um, including the social permaculture toolkit, because that is, that is the most challenging work to do because it's almost like gardening's easy. That's very straightforward. How do we doing, you know, doing this Tai Chi with, you know, with, with our community members and with the city government and trying to um, make it in a way that's palatable, but also moving, moving the ball forward. So yes, it is very exciting. Um, and I'm, I, I get a lot of uh, energy uh, and, and um, support from the feedback that I'm getting from the community about how necessary um, this is. And where I'm at right now is creating an ebook um, that lays out all the steps from one to 10. There's only 10 steps to get this thing going in, uh, in your house um, and make it so that there's no mystery. There's no mystery involved here. This is something that everybody with just basic home improvement skills can be doing and you don't need to spend $10,000 to pay a professional. However, this could become a regenerative job because you build one for your home now you can be building one for your neighbor. I think we're going to be seeing in the near future a TED talk by you about universal basic water income. And I think boiling it down to like a one sheet or a meme or a talk or something is so vital i mean because when you said that that made everything like slide into place so perfectly i mean like i already see how this is finally the avenue that people really can step into with power into that alternative currency world but to open it up into the realization water is life if we guarantee a universal basic water income, that, then we're providing the safety net, the actual safety net. Yes. And, and everything flows from there. Right. Because a lot of, you know, just not meeting basic human needs is what's causing so much of the suffering and the um, violence mm -hmm. that exists in our world is because people don't have the livelihoods, don't have that natural capital to be living um, on top of, and we've even seen it in, in Syria, where you can trace the current civil war 
to deforestation and drought. Yep. And it, it, when we're looking through the lens of water, everything becomes much clearer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, between water, soil, you know, those two, those two stories, you kind of see the entirety of human history um, through completely new eyes, not this great tale of conquerors and, or not, not so great, but you know what I mean? Like this like heroification story, mythification story, you know, of violence being this positive, um, progressive thing throughout history. Instead, we see that we're running from resource to resource to resource and getting more and more creative in how to manage our resources or reach deeper into the natural resources that we've used up. Yeah, and I want to just add, this is not the end goal. This is a <laughs> stepping stone to get to a point where we don't need currency because our culture is so ingrained and almost our spirituality is tied to the protection and, and preserving of, of the water resource. So eventually we get um, where we don't need to necessarily have, say, 2150. We're in a place where we don't necessarily need to have the rain coin or the Internet of Rain because we've come to a point where we are designing our habitats to be aiding in that flow of water. Wow. I mean, this is absolutely stunning. You've provided a very clear pathway out of the current economy for many, many people. Um, and, and I mean, it, it's not all the way out, you know what I mean? Like you said, this is the tip of the iceberg. I don't want people to think that like, this is a cure-all, but what I'm saying though, is it puts you in the regenerative economy. It puts you into a completely new reality where you have this like new form of capital. Expanding off of like, for example, seed banking, mm. right? Mm. Transparency, um, supply chain. These are th this seed banking is one of those things that I think blockchain will be able to help scale uh, because it's going to be able to track assets and to basically give an open, transparent uh, bank. Right. Anything with the word bank in it, uh, blockchain will disrupt. So time banking, seed banking. The other um, um, thing that I They'll think will be able very to actually have them um, uh, uh, like like um, decline in value as they age, too. Which so you can actually code, you can create a decaying currency using, using the software. And then here's another one that I think is also very powerful is the um, compost coin, where you will get paid to poop. And we've already seen this in the past, right? With, with, your, with the example in Japan. Um, yeah. Because, oh, we, yeah. because flush toilets are, are using so much water. Um, they're creating so much biological waste um, and destruction of habitat because here in, in St. Pete, Florida, the city is getting fined thousands and thousands of dollars because of sewage overflows during heavy rain events. So there's, there's just so much economic incentive for us to make the switch. We just need um, better tools and, and what's called a, um, token architects. <laughs> so that's a new job title of the future. Yeah, no, this is, this is stunning. I, I seeing you, pull this out and then start applying it to different things is, I mean, this is the area where I don't, I'm, I'm not well versed in. And I think for a lot of us, we're not well versed in unless we, you know, took those business classes and courses, you know, I'm, yeah, but I if was you, English. If you, I was Trojan English. Horse it, if you, if you create a Trojan horse and you, and you 
kind of embed these tools into a game that's fun where people don't have to necessarily think about what's the underlying um, software that's running it. Right. Um, and I think, you know, in the future, like our kids, the internet is, is going to be intuitive and it's going to be something where you're, you know, our, the next generation is going to know multiple programming languages and it's not going to be something where, because we've had an older generation that grew up without the internet, it's still new and, and a little bit frightening. So the next generation is going to be inhabiting the space in a much more intuitive and fluid way. Do you really think that kids are going to learn other languages? I just think we're going to continue to see the, um, oh, what is it called? Like click and play philosophy with, or um, like the, 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 like the fifth sense technology concept where there needs to be a tactile play nature to our technology. I think we're going to continue heading that way, even with code. And then the AI will facilitate the code. Yeah. Um, more well, if you want to get super sci-fi, there will eventually be a, a neural link. So, well, let's get into that for a second because everyone's talking about the, the, the neural link that Elon Musk is working on. But the thing is, our cells receive across a wide spectrum of frequencies. So we don't, like our cells and our body and internal communication and the way we receive information, the way we put out information actually, um, is this huge wide bandwidth of, uh, of frequency. And so the concept of, 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 of communicating in binary seems limiting. Right. So there is a fantastic um, trilogy called uh, Nexus. And okay. it's written by a guy named Ramez Nam. But uh, so instead of binary, it's actually, can we create uh, kind of like a brain to brain Vulcan mind milled using, um, and in the story, it's basically a pill that you consume. Uh, and then you, you, have a, you have a graphical interface like in your, in your brain. And it's so hard to kind of speculate and you know, what is gonna happen 30, 300 years from now. But what I think is the the undercurrent of the universe is creating deeper connections and i think of what are we doing on planet earth what why are we here right because that's the question and i think we're here to serve mother earth in a way that sh she is self-actualizing herself through human civilization we are in that process of of growing and emerging and you know is is it that the earth like we're sending these spaceships out pew, pew, and it's almost like inseminating other other planets with life because there's water on mars right and there and i i know i have a friend who is actively working with nasa um to make it rain on mars and <laughs> so it's it's wild because you can um, create these greenhouse structures on Mars where there's where there's frozen ice and then that water um, basically thaws and melts and condensates and you know terraforming Mars isn't um, that far out of um, like imagination and you know our, our and you look at the universe and there's you know it's surrounded by darkness like the majority of the universe is dark matter and and as consciousness, are we here to spread light, to spread life? So maybe when we start, like, it, like so for many of us, I think, in the permaculture environmental um, 
you know, Mother Nature kind of focused world, we hear terraforming Mars and we're like, but what about Mother Earth? And we get, we get very defensive. But I think, I really think that um, when you said that, I saw this other, this other path that maybe when we see what we can do to a barren world where people haven't touched anything, then we can really look to ourselves now on our world and say, if we can do this, you know, and make paradise on like a dead world start, why can't we do this here? Why can't we fix our world? But I feel like ooh, that's so far out and we have, you know, I mean, it's predicted we have eight years left of wild animals. You know what I mean? Giraffes, you know, like bumblebees, like everything seems to be hitting uh, monarch butterflies. Everything seems to be hitting um, these, uh, these sudden- Tipping uh, points. Yeah, yeah, bottlenecks and, and popular. Hey, Matt, um, my, my laptop is, is going low on battery. Do you mind if I plug yeah, in? I'm out here in the wild, need, need a power source. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you talk about precipitation, I was thinking about how the sun, you know, in a, in a way precipitates down upon us. It's, you know, it's raining down on us, the energy. And um, yeah, I mean, when we, when we have the ability to track these things um, and put quantifications to them, for a lot of people, that's the moment it becomes real, even though those are arbitrary quantifications and biophilia needs to be the root and foundation of everything. But yeah, quantifications, the slippery slope that, that we find ourselves always, always climbing. Well, I wanna bring up the work of Charles Eisenstein. I mean, yeah, that's what I was just thinking of. I was thinking about how man is the animal that counts. You know, we're the animal that counts. I've not heard that before, but <clears throat> We're the animal that counts and then finds meaning in those countings, you know what I mean? <clears throat> <clears throat> right, because what we're not measuring, it's like we can only, you can't manage what you don't measure, but when we measure, we are only thinking about the things that we're looking at and we're not thinking about what is outside of that sphere of the little, the little. But we also I mean, disconnect from the reality because it's an abstraction. And this is like the, the major problem with all Western thought is that we created letters instead of it being pictograms and then everything being rooted to like, and this is, you know, um, oh man, Ezra Pound's ABCs. If you look at um, <clears throat> the ABCs of writing, if you look at what he talks about, the difference between pictorial languages or um, pictographic languages and symbolic abstract languages, when we talk about things, they, they define a cup by like, well, this is a cup. And like we talk about cups in the Western world, they're like, well, it is a vessel for liquid for imbibing sometimes. And it's often cylindrical. And it's like, what? It's all abstract, abstract. And so I feel like that is the root of all those issues that we have actually. And that's pretty easy to circumvent because that's behavioral. Um, and it's like, yeah, we could, we, we, we would have to just deal with more things that are real. I mean, if you think about it, they spent 12 years dealing in abstraction or training for extra abstraction. Um, so, yeah. And I've, 
because it is it is challenging because with with science we have this uh observer observee kind of split right um mm -hmm. but once something gets observed it like changes <laughs> it changes its shape and the kind of understanding that i've come to is and especially in having a strong spiritual practice is that's giving me the intuition um on how to navigate and what the science does is it helps inform but not necessarily guide. So using the spirit to guide the science to inform and trying to strike a balance because even if we have all the data and we have all the numbers, we still don't know what to do. <laughs> and this is why we need an ethical basis to society and we don't have that. Like there are no fundamental ethics that we teach in school. We don't inoculate a foundation that would value spirit. We only create a foundation that values the abstract quantification. And that's, that's the work that we are going to have to do as teachers and as parents to the next generation is to provide that, that foundation. I love it. And I love the fact that it's almost like you're flipping it on its head. It's like um, you're creating like, like pictographic currency almost because it, relates directly to real things yes so we have like a soil like a carbon soil economy we've got you know what i mean all these different things I well, mean, looking at um the amazing economy that's happening under the soil because all it is is just exchange mm -hmm. and if we can use nature as the guide for how we design currencies so i ask myself what what does water want in a currency? What does soil want? How does that want to be designed? And we can use those lessons to create uh, plant-soluble nutrients that take shape in the form of a currency um, that needs those brokers, that needs uh, specific uh, job functions, because we're, we're just mirroring that, what's going on below. And I know that sounds like super strange to design a currency based off of how the microbiology works, but they're doing it naturally. That is their natural state. They are following their true nature. And so that's, that's the thinking that I undergo as, as I'm trying to think about designing these regenerative currencies. And exactly. water, water wants to flow and you can create, um, so for example, right? Uh, there's this thing called a non-fungible token. This is a new uh, digital currency thing. And what a non-fungible token is, think of a piece of art, right? Um, or, or a house. This is something that um, has um, kind of, it's not, it's not a commodity, it's something unique. And we can create the same thing with, with each rain cube is unique. Um, and I found inspiration uh, through snowflakes right? Because each snowflake is unique. And if we can assign each rain cube an individual unique um, identity or a unique coin that is mapped onto it, and it's given a pictographic shape of a, of a snowflake, and what a snowflake is, is just a two-dimensional cube. And so we can start playing around with all these fun shapes, because all we are, like this body, uh, this nature is just, it's just embodied patterns. So it's so fascinating. We have, we're just at the dawn of a new age. Um, and 
going into it with curiosity as opposed to fear. And that's what's been kind of guiding me as well is asking what if, as opposed to um, like, Ugh. you know, what it's, and that's kind of what we're, the, the state of affairs that we're in right now is we're just so afraid. We're just constantly being fed fear. And um, I'm hopeful in the future because as I share the story and as, um, you know, in, in your experience, preaching the good word of permaculture, right? Uh, we have the tools to really, you know, undo or to create what we, what the kind of world that we want to inhabit. So I think not being afraid of technology because, you know, we're at the end of the day, we're the ones who are creating it. Um, we have the free will to create. Um, and not everything we create is, is going to, uh, be useful. And uh, one of the things that I found so, because uh, everybody looks at Steve Jobs as like the the startup guru, right? Everybody idolizes Steve Jobs. But if you read his biography, he's a very, very deeply troubled person um, who was very violent with, with both his coworkers and with his family. Mm. And there was a, a fantastic line. There's there two Steve Jobs movies. There was one with Ashton Kutcher was more of like, kind of like the the poppy biopic. And then there was the one with uh, Seth Rogen and, um, ooh, what's his name? Um, I, I can't remember the actor's name, but the, um, the Steve Wozniak character tells Steve Jobs in the movie, don't put your flaws into the product. And we can't create the type of technological tools that we want to that will serve us until we first deal with our flaws and do the work healing our trauma because it's just going to show up in the product. And um, I think that is probably the most important thing to start off with is, is the inner landscaping, which then transforms the outer landscape. So the reason why we have such lousy internet tools right now, and this is, I, I worked as a contractor inside of the Facebook headquarters in Palo Alto for six months um, in the belly of the beast and everything is, and, and this is why I'm so, intrigued and interested in the web three uh, decentralized blockchain technologies because the current internet we have is optimized for maximizing ad revenue. And um, that is a shame because it, it was intended to be such a more powerful tool. Um, and we're kind of like, like left with this kind of smelly, smelly, stinky, uh, shady, shady internet. And um, cable company caught up with us. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It has. It's really come around full circle. And but because we had the financial crisis of 2008, Bitcoin emerged in 2009 as a response to that. And 10 years later, we're on the verge of another debt bubble popping that's going to create a whole new wave of people out of necessity having to occupy this new Web Web 3, Web Web 3.0. Because um, the analogy that I like to use is, um, like say 20 years ago, the cost to produce like one photograph, right? Like you go to Kodak and you got the real film and you got to pay the guy and like print it out, right? Now it, we have Instagram and it costs nothing, next to nothing, near zero marginal cost to create a photograph. And that same economic transformation is now the same thing with money. It costs near zero to print prove, prove, provably rare digital assets, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what is scarcity when digital money is abundant? And that's a, a new question that we have to grapple with 
and um, I'm going to be moving to San Francisco tomorrow, right, in, right back in it, uh, trying to bridge the blockchain world and the regenerative economy and trying to figure out how do we make these new puzzle pieces fit. And California is, um, has a new program called the Healthy Soils Program where they're paying farmers to, to no-till, to compost, compost tea. And we're starting to see the financial incentives start to come into play. Wow. And uh, we can do better than, than dollars. We, and we have to do better than dollars because that's, that's still a scarcity economy because you have to pay back the interest on, on, that, on that dollar bill. And it's in decline. It is in decline because um, and China just injected $500 billion of new money into the economy. So we're going to get you know, inflation and, and there's going to be a lot of defaults because that last 10 years of economic growth in China has been building bridges to nowhere and ghost cities and um, all these things that are never going to pay back. So it's um, what are we investing in and the regenerative economy has the best returns because it's constantly generating a return. Yeah, and it's, and it's funny, when I first started talking about permaculture and relating it to the economy of the soil and the way just money works, it was like the first time I could talk to my brother who's a financial planner. And it was like the first time like my dad like could like hear me like when I talked about my business. It was really odd, but I really feel like this is the bridge um, that is going to carry people into the regenerative economy because you, you're, you're touching a space that um, is an un, unrealized resource. Yeah, and the, it's so easy to have that resource co-opted by Nestle, right? Uh, or to have a corporate extraction model come in. So creating um, local rainwater harvesting cooperatives where it's a, it's a, it's an entity that is owned and operated by the citizens. And I think that's, um, and, and though that we already have, you know, legal precedents and frameworks for establishing those cooperatives. So I think it's gonna, and going back to what I was mentioning with those decentralized autonomous organizations, lowering the cost to, you know, creating these cooperatives. Cause right now it's fairly time intensive and, and financially, um, consuming to set up a legal entity that is structured as a cooperative. But, you know, it's just one thing that we're going to have to navigate and, and to deal with, but trying to avoid a situation where there is a single entity and it's extracting and, you know, causing more suffering. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing so deeply going all over the map with me and on on this because I really feel like everyone who watches this is going to get such a deep understanding of not just rain cube not just where you're coming from but where the path is not you know where the big path is yes so hopefully thank you Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you. I mean, this is the stuff that, you know, is my blind spot. This is the stuff that I don't understand. So this is huge for me, for everyone. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And this, to succeed, I mean, I, I want to create something that goes beyond me because this is not about me. Uh, this is about us. 
being able to do something together mm. and creating as much opportunity and lowering the barriers to entry to get as many people coming in as possible and really plotting out a strategic vision so that we can be moving both autonomously but also interdependently. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. So what's, what's the website we should be going and visiting? The website is raincube.io and there you'll want to download the blue paper and that lays out the, the plan and it is also a work in progress because you know things we need to iterate and test and develop and a lot of this is going to be determined um, by the environment that it inhabits. So I, I want to start experimenting with the CSA models that I mentioned. Um, I've already built um, a few iterations of the Internet of Things platform where you have kind of like the sensor and the app and everything. Uh, I'm also looking for venture capital funding to kind of bring this technology uh, and get it the, the capital resources that it needs to get developers full time. And, to, and that is going to happen because more and more people are going to demand this type of solution. So how can people all over and especially in the San Francisco area contact you? Anthony at raincube.io. Perfect. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, yeah, I'll keep, keep in contact and uh, let's keep moving this forward. Sounds good. Awesome.